Welcome to Small Pleasures, the podcast that discusses great short stories and greatness in the short story form. My name is Livy Michael, and I am a novelist and short story writer from Manchester, England. And this is Sonia Moore, a short story writer and translator from Paris, France. Bienvenue. We've come together because of a mutual enthusiasm for the short story, although I think our responses and what we want from the short story vary, and we hope that the differences will provide a fruitful discussion. Today we're discussing Tessa Hadley's short story Bad Dreams, which is the title story of the collection of the same name, published by Jonathan Cape in 2017. Bad Dreams is Tessa Hadley's third short story collection, coming after Sunstroke and Married Love. In addition to being one of the UK's foremost contemporary short fiction writers, Hadley has published six highly acclaimed novels and essays. She's Professor of Creative Writing at Bath Spa University and a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. So Livy, why this collection or why this story? I think the collection as a whole shows off Hadley's range and it was really hard to choose one to talk about. But this is one of the shorter stories of the collection and also more experimental than the others, I think. More surreal, small, but perfectly formed. It's a real masterclass, isn't it? As you say, perfect. Do you want to kick off our discussion by saying what happens in this story? Yeah, well, in terms of plot, it's quite simple. A child wakes up in the middle of the night. She's had a bad dream linked to the book she's been reading, which is not in itself a scary story. She gets up and goes from the bedroom into the hallway, through the kitchen and into the lounge, where on an unexplained impulse, she upends the furniture. Then she goes back to bed and the mother gets up. The mother's first thought is that they've been burgled, but her second thought is rather stranger than that. She assumes that her husband has done it in a moment of anger directed against her, and her response is to cover it up, restore order, and to resolve never to acknowledge what's happened. So in one sense, something vital or pivotal has happened, and in another, nothing at all. And this tells us a lot about the family, I think, and about the imaginary liminal world of childhood. How do you interpret the child's actions? Well, the furniture is described as seeming more substantial than the child, and she wants this firmness and solidity. I think because she's glimpsed the world as as contingent and subjective, which is a terrifying notion in some ways. So she reacts against this notion, upturning the chairs. And this in turn writes a different story. So her action kind of confirms her fears. And there the, there's a chair that seems silly, for example, when it's upturned, and then it seems sinister when the light withdraws. And the child is amused by this, but she's also terrified. This made me think of something I heard about laughter, that it's a diverted scream, so a response to danger that's perceived, but somehow not realised or averted. And I wondered if fiction is the child's way to get a handle on her reality. Well, I like the idea that she's writing a different story because I think on one level, this story is about the power of reading for the child in particular. So the story that she reads over and over again is Swallows and Amazons. And this is a story, it's a classic children's story about six children who... um, 
play out with total freedom in, in their summers together. And they're described as pushing across the threshold of safety into the unknown. So it's from an earlier generation when children could play out in an unsupervised way and they take boats out onto the lake and explore the countryside. So as I say, it's a classic children's book, but it's not set in the kind of fantasy world of books like Narnia. It's described as being in a parallel dimension to the child's own world. I think that's important in a way, because in my experience of children, I used to go into children's schools a lot, and there was always this division between children who preferred real fantasy stories and ones who preferred stories set in the real world. But in this story, the child dreams about this world of swallows and Amazons. So there's a kind of third dimension of reality or experience within the story. And in the dream, she learns what happens to the characters as they grow up. And none of what happens is particularly good, especially we feel what happens to Susan, who's described as the dullest of the swallows. And she just kind of deteriorates into an old age, lives a very domestic life, uh, a little like the child's own mother. And this dream fills her with horror. And I feel that the, the kind of fear, the terror in it comes from that knowledge that the fictional world and the world of childhood must end. Mm, that's really interesting. And it's, it's true, it's very unsettling as well, isn't it? This kind of meshing of, of reality and fantasy. Um, and one of the key features of this story, something that you pointed out to me, is that the main characters aren't named. So we have the child, uh, the child's mother, a young wife, uh, the husband. What's the effect of it? Yes, it's really interesting because the fictional characters are named, the ones from the children's book. So they have an extra kind of dimension of reality. And I think throughout this story, there is a blurring of the line between fiction and reality, memory, dream, and imagination, partly because fantasy and play are so important to any child, and partly because of how different the experience of reading in childhood is. I think it's a really, you know, it is different from the experience of reading as an adult. So I was like this child to some extent. I read over and over again to the extent that it interfered with my daily life. And I sometimes say that while I lived in a small northern town as a child, I actually grew up in Narnia and Middle Earth. That's very funny that you grew up in Narnia and Middle Earth. Uh, I love this link that you're making between fiction and childhood and fiction as a kind of imaginative playground to try out alternative realities. Uh, the child is described as an advanced reader, but I read her also as a writer or maybe a budding writer. She seems to have this growing awareness of the power of narrative to create reality. The dream is authored by the child, for example, though she doesn't quite realise this. Reality seems to press in on her from, from outside, like with the mother impressing on the child the importance of her father's work. But it also seems to be shaped and expressed in words. So the book presses into the child's leg and the father's ink bottle leaves imprints on the desk. And she, she looks for his meaning in his accumulated texts as well. So words seem to be especially associated with the father. He's reading and writing about Leviathan, which I suppose is Hobbes's work on government and the organisation of society. 
Uh, and I believe that presents humans as matter emotion. Do you know anything about that? Or do you see any link with the, the world Hadley is making in this story? Well, yes, and that is so interesting because I hadn't actually thought about it before you mentioned it. Leviathan was written in the period of the English Civil War, which was a time of intense disruption. And Hobbes is the one who said that uh, most people's lives are nasty, brutish and short. He emphasised a natural tendency towards anarchy and the necessity of a social contract between ruler and ruled. And as you say, he explained man's behaviour in materialist rather than spiritual terms. And the child's perceptions maybe suggest that there's more to us than this, you know, that we're both text and, and subtext. Um, I wondered if words might function a bit like a door for the child, enclosing meaning and shutting her out, but also a way in and a way of engaging in this commerce with the world, this business of making and shaping realities. There's a definite sense of empowerment through reading. And there's also though this really powerful scene at the end where the mother chivies the child, forcing her out of her literary world and her interior world. Well, yes, and this is where I think the anonymity of the characters prompts a symbolic reading of them, that there's something in this story about the changing female role. So the young girl will be disruptive of the family and the domestic, while the mother in that older generation will cover up the disruption. But as you say, the girl at the end is brought back into the fold. The mother reacts by suppressing her knowledge of the transgression and of her daughter to some extent. And the last page is really interesting because it emphasises a difference between the daughter and the mother. The mother looks at the daughter in not a particularly maternal way. And she takes the beloved book from her daughter and, as you say, chivies her along. Mm, it's really interesting, this, this matrilineal thread you highlight with the, the mother's role modelling and repressing and restricting the child. Uh, I was quite hopeful for the child's rebellion because she seems very determined to, to test the limits and extent of her own world through fiction, perhaps extend her own, her own world or her power. Um, do you think this story is at all comparable to Alice Munro's exploration of gender roles, which we discussed in our podcast on the Children's Day? Well, yes, I do see Hadley as exploring the female psyche like Alice Munro, not crossing the gender gap so often like, uh, with a male protagonist like Pat Barker, even though there are class themes in her work, as there are in Pat Barker's work, that she's more oblique in the way she deals with both gender and class, I think. Yeah, it does seem, or at least gender seems to be explored as one of many interrelated elements, as you say, without ever losing sight of the very particular profile of each of her characters. I feel she allows the details of setting to speak for her and she excels at this, at creating a scene that's both detailed in a realistic sense and full of nuance. The period details are so incredibly precise, aren't they? The appliqué handicrafts and the philodendron trailed around a gilt mirror. They really conjure a period interior and tell us something about the people living there as well, this urban, suburban, middle-class family with ambitions to better their situation through work and education. I'm always really impressed by Hadley's use of period detail. You know, I also grew up in the 60s and 70s, but I would actually have to research at great length to capture that kind of closely observed minute detail that she puts into her stories. She creates a really textured 
tangible world as if we're in the realm of social realism, yet in most of her stories there's an element of the surreal or irrational that comes from the characters themselves and their interactions. So there's a kind of tension in her work between the characterization and the setting. I love this comparison you're making between the, the realism and the surrealism. Um, there are these more subconscious elements that keep resurfacing, aren't there? There's the, the wildness of the interior in the moonlight, for example. And the child seems to be more aware of these elements, more integrated maybe than her mother in a psychological sense. Her mother seems to be more concerned with the surface of things and with working backwards from there to construct a reality that's acceptable to her. Even her own reality, which she adapts to fit her ideal of herself as Monica Vitti, when she sees her reflection in the mirror. The mother seems perhaps more repressed, less ready to perceive or engage with these subconscious elements. Yes, I think that's an important point. The child is more at home with the subconscious elements. And right from the first page, we see the child emerging from unconsciousness into a world that seems at first alien, then familiar. And the child is at once particularised an individual with her love of reading and a fear of the dark, her particular smell and a particular nightdress. But she's also representative of a child before that transitional time of puberty. She lives in her fictional world and there's something wild and anarchic about her as there is about childhood in general, I think, before it's fully tamed or domesticated. Beautifully put. And that, that first scene is brilliantly rendered. I love the way the world first emerges for the waking child through these um, visuals and sensations. And her parents seem to be characterised more by the sound of what they do, the industry. So the mother listens for her children rather than, rather than looks for them. It's almost as if the adults are in a world of sounds turned to usefulness, while the child can still access this watery dream place of visual impressions and tactile sensations. Absolutely. I mean, we have all the detail of the mother as well, the sewing and the perfume that she uses, Lair du Temps, Nina Ricci. My mother loved that too. I think it was really popular at the time. So it's another period detail. And yet she remains the child's mother, or the young wife, defined by her domestic role in relation to others. Although she does have her own flash of rebellion, where she feels that she should have been a painter rather than a housewife and dressmaker, but the fine arts students were mostly men. And that's, you know, another thing that's authentic to that period. In fact, I'm beginning to be intrigued by the amount of setting and description there is in the short stories we've discussed so far, because we're always told that the short story is the most economical form and you have to make every word count. That's a great point. I think it's good to keep testing these definitions of, of form. So when you say economical, that takes me back to the heavyweight minimalists like Ernest Hemingway, uh, Raymond Carver, Amy Hempel. And I think that style is very dominant even now. But there are loads of writers like Angela Carter who have a more Baroque style, but every word still counts. So they're economical in that sense. And Hadley's prose brilliant, is brilliantly descriptive, but never gratuitously. So it's always with purpose. So I guess it's kind of mannered realism in its way. I like that term. And I think there's scope for research here. What counts as essential detail? Even the very short story has to create a world. And that world is sometimes Baroque, as you say, or surreal in this case. One of the kind of surreal elements is the collapsing of time frames that we were discussing with the Graham Mort story, A Walk in the Snow, the sense of the fictional characters' futures 
and her parents past. Yeah, absolutely. And the inaccessibility of the past, right, especially other people's past and, and their presence for that matter, their discrete realities. Like in Grandmort's story where an imagined person is also perceived as having their own lived experiences and, and perceptions. And what about the shift in perspective? I mean, that's also not usual or traditional in the short story. Why doesn't it stay with the child? Oh, great question. There, there is this strong but subtle contrast, isn't there, between the mother and the daughter? And the mother constructs a narrative to explain the unexplainable while the daughter is raw from this discovery of the tenuousness of any notion of reality and keeps returning to her book as if trying to map her experience of fiction to her experience of reality. I read in a, a book about poetry that an event used to have a different meaning and it meant more um, coming upon a thing. And I wonder if inventing words will become the child's way of dealing with the dynamic relation we have to reality and each other's realities, always coming upon what's presented, like the mother in the upset room, and at the same time creating narratives around this that will become our reality. So inventing in all senses. And our inventions affect others' narratives as well, like the mother narrativizing the unexplained happening in terms of an aggressive outburst from her husband, which will then surely affect her attitude towards her husband. I love that idea because that is how we create our worlds, our realities, by building narratives around them. And in this story, we have a disrupted narrative that is transgenerational and says something about changing females' roles. And... Also, just to go back to that shift in perspective, we move from the child's perspective to the mother's and we get the mother's view of her daughter, which, as I say, isn't a particularly maternal view. And the child isn't described in a traditionally feminine way. She's rather scruffy. She's trying to read at the same time as getting dressed, which is holding her up no end. But it's not, for instance, as though she's blow drying her hair or painting her fingernails and that's taking up her time. It's her immersion in the fictional world, which is presented as an alternative space, a little like the world of dreaming. Yeah, like dreaming, exactly. There are loads of water images, aren't there? Whenever the child enters this space, she swims to consciousness and paddles in the rug that's turned strange by moonlight. It's so beautiful. Yeah. I heard that water is a dream metaphor for the subconscious. And I'm thinking also of um, Jorge Luis Borges, whose name I'm afraid I don't know how to pronounce properly, mm. and I apologise to Argentinians. Um, he made this link between writing and dreaming with writing as a guided dream. So we enter and kind of create a dream when we're writing. Yeah, so I think there are two or three different kinds of reality presented here in this short story. And the child occupies more than one of them, as if her boundaries are less defined because she's not yet being trammeled into a traditional female role. The disruptive act seems to be a form of rebellion against it, in fact. Um, I've referred to this book before, the short story in German in the 21st century, and there's an essay in it in which Kate Roy suggests that the microfiction of Sudaber Mohafez is an expression of multiple hybrid subject positions that engage with liminality which I think is also true of Hadley's work. And Anya McMurty reflects on short stories as reflexive re-embodiments of linguistic and geographic spaces. And I think that's really true here because what is the setting of this short story? Is it the flat, the fictional world that the child is reading about? 
or the world of a dream or some kind of interface between these worlds. And I also think that that is often true of Hadley's fiction, something about the way a character is presented or the interactions between characters redefines the space in which the story is set as in flight, where the two sisters have occupied such different worlds, but the actual terrain of the story is the conflicted relationship between them. So in most of the stories, there is this kind of interface between memory and imagination, and certain aspects of the stories often seem as though they might be autobiographical, but they are also always fictions. Yeah, as you say, it's, it's concerned with liminality in this respect. And I wonder if there's a further link with memory, because Bad Dreams relies on the reader storing in memory all Hadley's little clues, so we engage in constructing these fictions. And then, like the child protagonist, we have to rush back through our data to check it all when reality emerges as unreliable and contingent on the teller. Good point. I think there's such a lot in Hadley's stories that's about the interrogation of memory and narrative. There's maybe something to do with the distance or so. No? I really love Hadley's cool observing eye. The narrator seems objective, but the composition's always firmly directing the reader, like an English garden. So it's apparently natural, but really very cleverly conceived to appear that way. Yes, it's a question of focus, of where the eye is directed like a camera. There's a marvellous Flannery O'Connor quote about all fiction beginning in the eye. And that was a quote I never fully understood until I learned to see the ramifications of the writer's eye and its effects on structure and voice. I wonder if there's something to be mistrusted in the dominance of perceptions to what we see. Because Hadley herself seems to be both observing and observing or observing like in the scene where the woman catches sight of herself in the mirror and then straightens up to, into the reflection that she wants to see. I love that. I love that moment in the story because, uh, you know, it's something I do all the time. If I catch sight of myself in the mirror, I automatically correct my image of myself. So it's another of those moments that is so acutely observed in a realistic way, but also symbolic of the way in which we construct a social identity that ultimately is a kind of false or imaginary identity. Yeah, and we will engage in this, right? We will build the fiction. I wonder if this relates to the title at all, because it has grab, but it doesn't have the charge or the obvious payoff that uh, short story titles often have. And I wonder if this is intentional to leave story room to roam rather than tethering it and to leave the reader room to roam too. That's a lovely way of putting it. And of course, it's the title story of the whole collection. On the back of my edition, it says, the real things that happen to people turn out to be every bit as mysterious as their dreams. Brilliant. That sums things up very neatly and, and so beautifully. So Livy, if someone wanted to write a story like this one, how would they set about it? What are the key features of Tessa Hadley's style? Well, you'd really work on the detail on creating that tangible textured setting while also setting up different layers of reality through fantasy or fiction or another kind of art form or dream and one world would erupt into the other in a symbolic act or gesture which we also get at the end of flight which is the next story in the collection about two sisters. Thank you. There's so much to learn from these appreciations of style. I think it's a great way to enter into the writer's work and feed all that craft back into writing. And we're saying that Tessa Hadley is a master or mistress of the craft, someone to learn from. Bad Dreams is a wonderful collection by an exceptional writer. 
if you read it, which I hope you will, you might find that you have entirely different insights and angles or ways of reading these stories because a great collection is inexhaustible. You can always read it again and find something different in it. So thank you for listening to this Small Pleasures podcast and do keep your eyes and ears open for our next. Watch this space. We have many great short stories to cover. Until then, goodbye from me and Sonia. A bientôt.